We are in Lamentations chapter 5, if you want to navigate over there in your Bible or whatever device you prefer to read the Bible on. The takeaway is the main point of something. It's like a lesson or a presentation to uh, learn and remember. Tonight's takeaway is in verse 21 where we see that God loves to restore. You can always be restored by God. As long as you have breath and life, you can be restored. God loves to do it. In the times when you are struggling, suffering, maybe even sinning, God is working to restore you. If you're like me, you can't help but think of others who are far from God, so backslidden you start to wonder if they are truly saved. This lesson certainly has application to them too. Gives us hope to know God's heart really is for them, not against them, and that he's working to restore them. Now, Lamentations is just that. It's a series of laments about the judgment God brought upon his sinning people, the nation of Judah, in the 6th century B.C. After literally hundreds of years warning them and striving with them as a nation, God sent upon them his discipline in the form of the army of Babylon. The city was breached, the temple was burned, the people were killed or taken captive. This final chapter is not a lament like the first four, but rather it's a prayer. It's a prayer for God to restore and renew, believing that that is his work. We should note that it opens with an honest review of the current condition of the Jews as well as the reasons for their current condition. And I think that's telling. It's telling us that in order to be restored, a person must make an honest confession of their condition and the reasons for it. We would say you have to come clean before God uh, and just really, really come clean and say, look, as they're going to say, this is our condition and it's because we've sinned. And until you do that, God is working to restore you, but you're not going to be restored. So let's read through it. We'll pause to make a few clarifying remarks as we do. Starting in verse 1, of course, remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our house to foreigners. We've become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for the water we drink and our wood comes at a price. They pursue at our heels. We labor and have no rest. We have given our hands to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. And we can't really add much to the description. Their condition is very graphically described. The truth is, we really don't want to picture the horror of it. This has been, in many ways, I understand, a difficult book. I understand why it's not taught very often. Uh, Last week, we hit either the high point or the low point of the book when we were talking about cannibalism. Uh, and the fact that they had to eat their own dead children in order to survive this siege for almost three years that it went on. And so it's a difficult book, and we want to get away from that and overlook that. We don't want to picture those horrible kinds of things, but it's good to take it in because it's a warning of what can occur when a nation or even a person turns away from God. I I don't think sometimes we understand how horrible our sin looks, at least to God. Uh, when we're involved with it. And so, not that we have to dwell on these things, but we certainly want to 
uh, understand that they're there in the Word uh, and, and learn from them. Now, we might note the irony in verse 5 where it says, we labor and have no rest. One of the areas of disobedience for which God disciplined them was their failure to trust Him uh, for keeping the Sabbath year. Under the law of Moses, according to the law of Moses, every seventh year they were to let the land rest, plant no crops in the seventh year. No crops meant no harvest, so yeah, it required trust in God to provide for them. I mean, if you're an agricultural society and you get to that sixth year and, and you have your harvest and then you're thinking, hey, I'm not going to have another harvest for a long time. And you have to walk by faith believing that God is going to provide either an abundant sixth year harvest or some other way for you. But either way, God has said you're not to work the land that seventh year. That belongs to me. Just take a rest and trust me. They refused to keep that Sabbath year. The nation of Israel did, both Israel to the north and Judah to the south. They refused to keep the Sabbath year for a period of 490 years straight. When God sent them into exile in Babylon... He did it for 70 years. They had refused to keep 70 Sabbath years during those 490 years. So God was requiring those 70 years back from them. Had they rested rather than worked, they would not be in a situation of laboring and having no rest. And so it's a, it's a real irony, I guess, is the best word. Had they rested rather than worked, they would not be in a situation of laboring and having no rest. And it becomes an example to us of God giving you what you think you want rather than accepting what he knows is best for you. And so they, basically, they, they didn't realize it, but they were saying to God, we want to work the seventh year. We want to keep working because we don't trust you, so we're going to keep working. And so God says, I have to have those years. It's part of our covenant. It's part of our agreement. At Mount Sinai, your forefathers signed on. They said, yeah, we'll do that. In fact, they probably thought it sounded great in the first year and up through about the fifth year. Uh, and, And so God says, you wanted to work, so now, now you're going to work. You're going to work hard. In fact, you're not going to even reap the benefits of your labor. And it's a reversal of fortunes, we might say, but oftentimes God will give us what we think we want, but when we see what it really involves, we wish that we had just trusted him. A lot of sin is like that. It's pleasurable for a season. We think we're being, uh, you know, uh, furthered by it. We, we think everything's going fine, and then finally the hammer falls We find ourselves addicted or habituated, losing our jobs, losing our families, um, despairing of life itself, those kinds of things. Verse 7, our fathers sinned and are no more. We bear their iniquities. Now, this does not mean that they were unfairly held responsible for the sins of their fathers. We are always responsible for our own sins. Remember that Israel was God's chosen nation. He dealt with them as a nation. 
Their fathers made certain wrong choices at a national level. They'd been doing it for many years. There were periods of revival, like under Josiah and all, but quickly they would go back to disobedience. They were allowing and promoting idol worship. They oppressed the poor. They refused to help the distressed and the aliens, those kinds of things. We read all about that in our studies in Jeremiah. We sort of talk like this today. How many times have you heard a a politician appeal to what we are leaving for our children to deal with? For example, with the national debt or with the deficit. It's not our children's fault, but it will affect them. I mean, that's a big, you know, emotional selling point for the politicians. We have to get control of this for our children. Look at what we're leaving. We're saddling them with debt. And that's the kind of talk that this is. It's that whatever, whatever the previous generation of Jewish leaders did, it was, it was flowing down to the current generation. But then the succeeding generations continued on the same political path as their fathers. They accepted those practices of idol worship and oppressing the poor and uh, those kinds of things. They adopted the ways of their fathers, and that too is why it could be said of them, we bear their iniquities, they were just like them by choice. So they bore their iniquities by the fact that they followed in their footsteps uh, as well as the fact that their forefathers had left them a mess. They chose to do it. They could have repented at any time. When we're reading sections of Scripture like this, realize that they could have repented at any time and God would have done what he always does. He would have relented at least in some measure of his judgment. The wicked pagan city of Nineveh repented at Jonah's lame preaching. Jonah didn't want them to repent. It was maybe the worst message that he could come up with. 40 days and God's going to wipe you out. No grace, no asking. of. I mean, he just, and, and they said, we'd better repent. And God spared them for at least another 100 years. And so, you know, we get caught up in this. People say, oh, God is so mean. And he's, look how cruel he is and all the judgment. At any moment, they could have pulled a Rahab and said, we repent. And God would have said, okay, well, now, now, now we're talking. Let's see what I can do. Verse 8, servants rule over us. There's none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven because of the fever of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones. Boys staggered under loads of wood. In other words, they were treated like beasts. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. It was bad. It was really bad for everyone all across society. Their treatment during and after the fall of Jerusalem shows us the exceeding wickedness of sin. It shows us its exceeding wickedness in the perpetrators who could do such things, who could carry out such evil. Social scientists and psychologists are still struggling to figure out why otherwise normal Germans were able to carry out the kind of atrocities that were discovered in the death camps during World War II. I think it was satanic, but it illustrates the exceeding wickedness of sin. 
So when you see those things and, and you watch those specials and they're trying to <clears throat> figure it out sociologically, you know, what, what were the factors, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of contributing factors. One major contributor is Satan, who is trying to destroy God's world. But uh, it just, what it does, if you step back, is just say, hey, sin is exceedingly wicked. This is what human beings are capable of because they are not in relationship with God. But we also see the exceeding wickedness of sin in the victims because they chose to go on sinning against God's clear warnings. As I said, sin may be pleasurable or seem satisfying for a season, but in the end it's horrific. We've seen in our previous studies all the way back in Deuteronomy when, when Moses first gave the law, God said, now, I want to tell you what could possibly happen if you continue in disobedience. There might come a time when I would have to besiege your city and you're going to eat your own children. And so this wasn't a new idea. God didn't say, I can't wait until I do this to you. He said, no, we're making an agreement here. All you have to do is obey me and you're going to be blessed like crazy. You won't even have to work for a whole year. You're, you're a farmer, you can just drink coffee on the porch every day while your land grows weeds and, and just kick back. Wouldn't you like to have a year off? Um, some people have that. They call it a sabbatical or, t- you know, if, I mean, if you miss your calling, you could be a teacher and have like four or five months off a year, but that's the idea. It's like, hey, I'll work for a while. Not hey, that's kind of cool. I just kick back. God said, I want to bless you like you can't believe, but I can't let you go completely astray. If we make this deal, you're going to have to keep your end of the covenant, which is really pretty easy. But if you go farther and farther astray, it could come to, since you're a nation, where I have to bring another nation against you to discipline you. And and when another nation gets involved, that means siege warfare. And, and, And that means the potential there is that you know, your, your children are going to get eaten and your women are going to get raped and your cities are going to get burned. And so, so you guys understand that? Yeah, we're on board, 100%. Let's go. And then almost from day one, they start disobeying God. <clears throat> and so we see the exceeding wickedness of sin in the victims as well. Why is there such evil? Well, it's because Adam and Eve abused their free will to disobey rather than obey God. Tertullian, early church father, wrote and he said, although the abuse of free will was foreseen by God, it could have been prevented by God only at the price of depriving human existence of its most notable attribute, namely free will. And so people say, well, why did God allow Adam and Eve to have a free will? Because human beings have to have a free will. Otherwise, they're not really human beings. They're automatons, they're robots. You saw in the video, God loves. Love, freely given, freely received, it can never be forced. And so they had to have a free will to choose. And so the only way that you can really create a race of people that is truly free is by giving them free will. And if you take that away by forcing them not to sin, then it's not free will and it just doesn't work. Verse 16, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us for we have sinned. Crown has fallen can mean one of two things, and usually, as these things do, it probably means both. It can mean that their last king, the appointed king, Zedekiah, was vanquished, leaving them without their own authority 
to be ruled by foreign kings. In other words, that God had taken the crown away from them in terms of their own autonomy and authority. And it can mean that their role as God's primary nation on the earth had been abdicated by them as they looked away from God and obviously down, any look away from God is a look down in the wrong direction uh, to earthly things, the crown fell off their head. Then they say simply but powerfully at the end of that verse, for we have sinned. That's it, isn't it? That's the honesty that is missing from my life when I rebel or from the lives of the backsliders that I know. So many times we try to blame our sin on others or on circumstances. We blame it on our genetics. We say, well, I was born this way. You know, it's because of how I was raised or it was because of how I was born or it's this pressure or that situation. Even more wretched are the times we say that what we're doing isn't sin, not for us anyway. We can even get to the point where we call good evil and evil good. Over the years, just by the nature of being in the ministry, I've talked to a lot of people in a lot of different situations. And sometimes I'll bring up certain examples, not of people, but of things people have told me on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday night of just the crazy excuses people give for their sin. You, you read right out of the Bible and you say, hey, this exactly what you're doing is sin. It says so right here. Well, not for me. Not in my situation because you see I'm a special case and, you know, uh, you know, the, the one that's going around now, the most popular theory today is that God wants me to be happy. So I don't, whatever God said in his word is canceled out. Instead of people underlining it, they line it out because, God said, because they say, well, God wants me to be happy. And I can only be happy if I sin in this certain way. And so therefore it can't be sin. And, and you, I, don't know, I don't even know how to talk to a person like that. I mean, I feel like asking them if their head hurts when they think thoughts like that because it's crazy. But that's the idea. When a person comes in and says, I have sinned, I, I, there's probably a million different reasons why, but I, I've sinned against God and against man. Well, now we're talking. Now you want to hug that person and, and receive them back and love them into the family of God and go around and tell everybody with your arm around them, sinner, back in the fold. And, and, but it, you have to come to that point. God is ready to restore, as we'll see in a moment, but he can't if we don't think we need restoration. Verse 17, because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it, sick in their heart, their eyes dim because they're filled with tears. They nevertheless, because they've confessed their sin, look beyond themselves to God now. They're saddened that Mount Zion is desolate with foxes walking about on it. That, in other words, their sin had defiled God's holy mountain. It wasn't just about them anymore. It was about their relationship with God. This is another thing that's typical of people be, if they're not going to confess their sin. You, you try to appeal to them. You say, you are wounding and grieving the heart of God. No, God loves me. God loves me. He sees what I'm doing and he'll forgive me. person needing to be restored must recognize their sin and understand that they have sinned against God. 
It's ground zero for restoration. Final four verses put the entire book into perspective. Jeremiah and the nation can only pray using these words because God works to restore them. Verse 19, you, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. We like to say God is on the throne or God is sovereign. The Jews recognized he was not in spite of their condition, but because of it. He was behind their conquest and captivity, leading them to repentance so he could restore them. You know, sometimes we look at God and say, well, if God is sovereign, why is he allowing this? The Jews are saying, God is sovereign and he did this because he knew that this was the only way that he would get our attention. We ask, if God is so sovereign sitting on his throne, how do we account for some of the things he permits to happen? God's methods in exercising his sovereignty bear a striking resemblance to the ways good humans parent their children. First, God sometimes permits freedom to play itself out in consequences, even if we become a cause of our own suffering. Freedom could have no meaning if I did not risk going astray. To posit a freedom that cannot possibly fail is to run away from the human freedom God gives us. God graciously allows freedom the room both to stand and to fall. This situation of the 6th century Jews attests to God giving them their freedom but bringing consequences. Second, God does sometimes hinder, at times directly resisting our actions, putting obstacles in the way of our hurting ourselves, like a parent who builds a fence so the child will not go into the street. Child still finds a way to get into the street, but not without confronting the serious effort of the parent at placing an obstacle. An example of this is Satan's complaint that God had put a hedge around Job. He said, of course he loves you because I can't get to him. And so we know that this is a way that God uh, exercises his sovereignty sometimes. Third, God might overrule us when we wander completely out of line. Sons of Jacob sold their brother Joseph into slavery. But then as governor of Egypt, he became the means of redemption for the whole family. God saw what they did. He let them do it, and then he overruled it for their good and his glory. And fourth, God steers our way towards new options, opening some doors, closing others. An example would be the Apostle Paul being prevented from going to certain areas until he received the vision to go to Macedonia. What will always remain a mystery to us is why God doesn't overrule in some cases, why he doesn't hinder in others, why certain doors remain closed. We need to trust that there are things he knows about the hearts he's dealing with and about the effects of everyone's choices that we cannot hope to fathom. It's a common theme in books and in movies, especially sci-fi movies, but it's not limited to them, that if a person alters something in the past, the entire future changes. Think it's a wonderful life where George has the vision of what life would have been like if he had never been born, and it's terrible. God knows all those kinds of connections. We don't, and so we must trust him to choose wisely when to permit certain things, when to limit other things, when to overrule things, and which doors to open or close. Essentially, there are times when I pray, say, God, do this. Do this. Limit this person. Stop this person. Hedge this person in. And there's nothing wrong with praying that way. 
But God ultimately exercises his sovereignty in mysterious ways that we don't always, sometimes, you know, sometimes God does answer that. And they come back and say, man, I just felt so hedged in and doors closed and all that. Other times, God seems to be doing nothing. He's never doing nothing. But we can't see the consequences of all that he is allowing and permitting. And so we trust him. Verse 20, why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Their discipline was so intense that it felt as if God had forgotten them. It felt as if he had forsaken them so long a time. In truth, it was they who had forgotten God for many centuries. The proof that God hadn't forgotten him was their captivity. He says, I can't forget you. I love you so much. I'm going to go extreme discipline so that you don't destroy yourselves. To ultimate intervention. God had revealed to them he would never forget them, and the discipline had a very definite end, 70 years. And so they're saying, oh, God, why do you seem like you've forgotten us? He says, no, this is going to go on for 70 years, and then I'll restore you. They were feeling what God had been feeling, really. God could say this to them, why, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? Verse 21, turn back to us. Uh, excuse me, turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. Be honest, you felt utterly rejected by God. You've wondered if he wasn't very angry with you. Of course not. If he is disciplining, it is out of love. Now, having come to the point of honest confession of sin, the people could ask the Lord to act, turn us back to you, O Lord. And you think, wait, do I turn or does God turn me? We get caught up in all of these crazy debates. Just think it through. God had been working all along to turn them back. The famines, the pestilences, the prophets, all of them were God's hands-on efforts to turn them back to himself. Finally, the destruction of the city and their captivity was God's final effort to turn them back, and it worked. Their declaration, turn us back to you, O Lord, is a recognition of the Lord's faithfulness towards them. It's the realization that he had been working relentlessly to do just that. It's not them begging him to do it against his will. It's them finally waking up to the reality, turn us back to you, O Lord. That's, that's what you've been about. And once restored, God renews. That is the joy of his salvation. You get that first love feeling. I know it was brutal, this whole Babylonian invasion and captivity, but it was nevertheless the work of a father loving his children enough to discipline them. Was it extreme discipline? Yes, but the problem is when you're a nation and God's dealing with you as a nation, his paddle is another nation. And that means warfare and everything that goes with that warfare in that era. And the, the bottom line is, it worked. The nation was preserved. They returned to their land. And ultimately, Jesus was born to them to be the Savior of the world. And I've said this many times, but we have to have the perspective that God is looking down and saying, I cannot ultimately let this fail. I can limit, I can overrule, I'll permit something, but sooner or later, God is going to step in and just say, okay, this far and no further. Because 
Jesus has to come through you. So if he had totally left them alone, the Jewish nation would be no more. They would have sinned themselves into oblivion. And so you look at it from that point of view. I mean, we can get into the cannibalism and the rape and all the terrible things that happened because of the siege. And they were terrible and they were brutal. We don't want to back away from that. But then you say, do you want the Jews to have ceased as a nation completely so that the Savior, Jesus Christ, could have never come into this lost world? What would this world be like if Jesus had not been born? It'd be way worse than what happened to the Jews in Jerusalem. And so God mercifully, wonderfully, working with his people, saying, I will restore you. And they finally recognize, waking up to it and saying, we have sinned. Restore us, O Lord. Amen?